Welcome to this special episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, in which we celebrate the feast day of St George, April the 23rd. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we uncover entertaining stories and fascinating facts about St George that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. St George has been England's patron saint and his emblem, the Red Cross, used as the flag of England since the Middle Ages. And St George's Day has been celebrated around the country with festivals and parades since medieval times. Indeed, St George has been recognised in England since Saxon times, with St George's Day, April the 23rd, first mentioned in 735 AD, by the historian the Venerable Bede in his Bede's Calendar. But why, despite being of Greek origin and having never set foot in England, is St George so deeply associated with England and the English? St George was a high-ranking Roman soldier martyred for his Christian faith by the Emperor Diocletian. He was tortured and put to death for refusing to recant that faith in AD 303 on April the 23rd, which is why we celebrate St George's Day on April the 23rd. Tales of St George's courage and fortitude in the face of persecution spread throughout Europe and he became the personification of good standing up to and defeating evil, the legendary hero who rescues a princess by slaying the dragon about to devour her. During the Crusades of the 11th and 12th centuries, St George himself appeared, riding a white horse beneath the banner of the Red Cross, to spur on the Christian soldiers fighting to win back the Holy Land from the dragon. And from that time on, St George became known as the Soldier's Saint. He is said to have inspired the crusading King of England, Richard the Lionheart, who adopted the cross of St George as his banner in battle. In 1348, in thanks for St George's help in defeating the French at the Battle of Cressy in 1346, Edward III founded a royal chapel dedicated to St George at Windsor Castle, and at the same time created an order of chivalry, the Order of the Garter, likewise dedicated to St George to go with the chapel. The arms of the most noble order of the garter show a garter wrapped around the red cross of St George, 
with the garter symbolically binding the knights together in a tight-knit protective band of men around St George, or i.e. around Edward III. But why the garter? Well, Edward III got the idea from a well-known story. Before a battle during the Crusades, his ancestor, Richard the Lionheart, had been inspired by St George to order his knights to tie garters around their legs as a mark of their rank. Richard's men went on to win the battle, so clearly St George knew what he was talking about. Garters begat victory. Membership of the Order of the Garter, which is the most senior order of knighthood in Britain and the oldest order of knighthood still extant in the world, consists of the Sovereign, the Prince of Wales and 24 Knights Companion, chosen personally by the monarch. Additionally, ladies of the Garter could be chosen. Henry VII, for instance, made his mother, Margaret Beaufort, a Lady of the Garter, while every Queen Consort since the reign of Edward VII has been made a Lady of the Garter. Membership of the Order is for life, and vacancies only occur when a member dies. The knights, who can now be men or women, used to be limited to the aristocracy, but today they are chosen from a variety of backgrounds in recognition for their public service, and new appointments to the order are announced appropriately on St George's Day, April the 23rd. A colourful story tells of how the order came by its motto, Oni soit qui mal y pense. While dancing at a ball in Calais, the Countess of Salisbury, much to her embarrassment, lost her garter, which was picked up and returned to her by the King, Edward III, who admonished the sniggering guests with the rebuke, Oni soit qui mal y pense, shame on him who thinks bad of this. The motto, in fact, refers to Edward III's claim to the throne of France. Shame indeed on anyone who should dispute that. St George was later evoked by another warrior king, Edward III's great-grandson Henry V, known as Harry, who, with the cry, God for Harry, England and St George! roused his troops at the Siege of Harfleur, prior to his famous victory over the French, no doubt aided again by St George, at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. At least that is according to that other English hero, William Shakespeare, who, spookily enough, was born on St George's Day in 1564, and even more spookily died on St George's Day in 1616. How auspicious is that? St George, despite being of Greek origins, must surely be an Englishman, or at the very least an honorary Englishman.
Slowly but surely, St George, patron saint of soldiers, and very obviously on the side of the English, was adopted by the kings of England, until by the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, he had replaced the Saxon St Edmund the Martyr, 9th century King of the East Angles, as the patron saint of England. At the same time, the cross of St George was increasingly flown alongside the royal banner, and so eventually became the flag of England. John Cabot flew the cross of St George as his pennant on the Matthew when he sailed from Bristol on his voyage to discover Newfoundland in 1497, and the same pennant was flown by the great explorers Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, and by the Mayflower as it arrived in the New World in 1620. In 1606, after the Union of Crowns of England and Scotland, the St George's Cross of England was combined with the Saltaire of Scotland to create the Union Jack. And indeed, the Cross of St George can be found adorning the Mother of Parliaments at Westminster today, seen on the six shields that sit above each of the four faces of the Great Clock, better known to the world as Big Ben. So where in England can we actually come across St George? Well, his spiritual home is the beautiful St George's Chapel at Windsor, founded by Edward III in 1348 and transformed into the glorious perpendicular Gothic church we see today by Edward IV in 1475. Edward III created the Order of the Garter at the same time as the chapel, and every knight of the Garter is required to display a banner of their arms above their allotted stall in the chapel, together with a helmet, crest and sword, and an enamelled stall plate fixed to the back of the stall. When a knight dies, their banner, helmet, crest and sword are taken down, and the stall given over to their successor but the stall plate remains there in perpetuity, and thus St George's Chapel has the stall plates of every single Knight of the Garter since 1348, forming the finest collection of heraldry anywhere in the world. Another place associated with St George is Dragon Hill on the Berkshire Downs near Wantage. The small, flat-topped hillock sits a little below the ancient Uffington White Horse and is crowned with a bare patch devoid of grass. This is where St George actually slew the dragon, and where the dragon's blood fell, the grass cannot grow. Some say that the White Horse is not a horse at all, but is in fact the dragon slain by St George. There are a number of churches in England where we can actually meet St George face to face. The earliest known images of St George in England are to be found amongst the marvellously vivid wall paintings in St Botolph's Church at Hardham in West Sussex, the oldest almost complete set of church wall paintings in England. 
They date from the early 12th century, from just after the First Crusade, which took place from 1095 to 1099, and show scenes of St George being held down and tortured, in one instance on a Catherine wheel, and on his horse, fighting for the Crusaders at the Battle of Antioch in 1098, his lance impaled in the body of an infidel. St George can be found in more or less the same pose, once again at the Battle of Antioch, but this time carved in stone on the early 12th century Norman tympanum, above the south door of St George's Church at Fordington, outside Dorchester in Dorset. A fair is held here on the village green beside the church every St George's Day. St George can be seen horseless but very visibly sporting his red cross, both on his tunic and his shield, on the wall of All Saints, Little Kimball in Buckinghamshire. This painting dates from the early 14th century and appears to introduce the theme of St George and the Dragon for the first time. For although whoever St George has vanquished has disappeared, a princess poses beside him, drooping in obvious gratitude for having been rescued. There is a wall painting of a triumphant St George seated on his horse above the south door in St Peter's Barton in Cambridgeshire. This dates from the mid-14th century and probably celebrates the help the saint gave to the Black Prince in defeating the French at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356. Dragons first appear in their full glory in the 15th century, when St George was being celebrated for helping Henry V win the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. In St Botolph's in Banningham, Norfolk, the dragon is a little chap about the size of a dog, while in St Catherine's, a lovely old church with a round tower in the middle of a field a mile from the village of Fritton, also in Norfolk, the dragon which is being trampled beneath St George's horse, is much bigger and has wings and a lashing tail. St George can also be seen on horseback, his tunic showing his red cross, dispatching a fully recognisable dragon with wings and flames belching from its mouth in a magnificent 15th century wall painting in St Mary's Church at Troston in Suffolk. The best dragon, to my mind, is a scaly monster with a curled tail and webbed wings that can be found on the south wall of St Lawrence's Church in Broughton in Buckinghamshire, which dates from around 1470. While in the redundant St Gregory's Church in Norwich, now an antique centre, there is a huge 15th century portrait filling almost an entire wall that shows St George waving his sword while his horse looks daggers eye to eye with the writhing dragon. Magnificent stuff. This bravura scene clearly represents Henry V's St George-inspired triumph at Agincourt. After Henry V died in 1422, there were no more stirring battles against the French, 
as the kings of England fell to fighting amongst themselves in the Wars of the Roses, and wall paintings fell out of fashion. Indeed, most were whitewashed over after the Reformation in the 16th century, not to be rediscovered until the Victorians began restoring our ancient churches. The memory of St George now lives on in England mainly through the English flag, which, as well as being waved at sporting events, particularly by followers of the England football team, is flown by the Church of England, the City of London with a sword in the top left quarter, and the Royal Navy as the white ensign with a Union Jack in the top left quarter. St George can still speak to us today. You don't need to be a King of England for his story to be relevant. We all have our own dragons to slay. Well, that concludes this special St. George's Day episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That podcast series, written and produced by Christopher Wynne. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. Please join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I Never Knew That. <laughs>